Let me start by uh, welcoming everybody to the London School of Economics. I'm uh, Wouter Den Haan, and it's my privilege to uh, introduce today's speaker. But I first have a couple of announcements. So Ethan will talk for roughly 30, 40 minutes, after which you have a chance to ask questions. Uh, I suspect that roughly quarter after eight will be done. I'd like to ask everybody to put their mobile on silence. Uh, and if you want to Twitter, the hashtag is LSE Macro. The plan is to make a video and make that available on the website of the Center for Macroeconomics. So this is part of a series on important macroeconomic topics. And there's going to be two more before the summer. So this is this evening's event. And then March... Uh, 19th, I talk about what you always wanted to know about macroeconomics. And Wednesday, April 30th, Kevin Shidi will talk about unconventional monetary policies during the recent financial crisis. Um, and then going back to the website, this coming Friday, the governor of the Central Bank of Latvia is going to give a talk Friday evening. Um, the new academic building, and the title is Latvia's Road to the Eurozone. Uh, so they just entered. There's some countries trying to figure out their way out of the Eurozone, but <clears throat> so this is an, uh, another perspective. So now I'd like to introduce my colleague, Ethan uh, Ilzetsky. He got his PhD in 2009 from the University of Maryland, after which he became an assistant professor at uh, the London School of Economics. He's an expert in fiscal economics, fiscal policy, and political economy, and it's a great combination. If you think you know, of the sovereign debt crisis in the euro area, is that fiscal policy always has political aspects to it. Uh, he has a recent paper in the Journal of Monetary Economics, and it's still in the top ten of most downloaded articles in the last 90 days. Uh, his work is often cited in newspapers, has already been cited in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, and even Paul Krugman cited him in his blog, and I cannot say that about my work. <laughs> and he has been interviewed by several news agencies, so we're very happy that Ethan is willing to give a lecture today on fiscal policy. So please welcome me, Ethan. Okay, thanks, uh, thanks, Bouter. Uh, so we appear to be emerging, uh, hopefully, from the worst and most globally synchronized recession in post-war history. Output in the United States plummeted at an 8% annualized rate in late 2008. The UK economy suffered a similar fate. And the policy response was also unprecedented in economic history. With interest rates nearing uh, the zero lower bound uh, in all major advanced economies, central banks took to unconventional measures. The Federal Reserve has expanded its balance sheet uh, from a, uh, by a, a factor of four from under a trillion dollars to over four trillion dollars in assets. The Bank of England expanded its balance sheet at uh, approximately the same rate. But as traditional monetary policy ran out of ammunition, with interest rates close to zero, policymakers turned to other methods, tax and expenditure policies commonly known as fiscal policy. 
In fact, the Obama administration's first act um, on taking power in, in 2009 was an unprecedented fiscal stimulus plan with $300 billion of tax cuts and expenditure increases of about half a trillion dollars. Other economies followed suit. Uh, the Chinese government, for example, announced a stimulus package in uh, 2009, including 4% of national income in infrastructure spending alone. But there was far from uniform agreement on the best fiscal response to the crisis. From some quarters, talking about Paul Krugman, uh, there, was, there were calls for aggressive fiscal uh, stimulus. These voices advocated tax cuts and public spending increases to try to revitalize economies that were in a deep slump. Here, Paul Krugman, who is not only a, a blogger and a New York Times uh, op editorial, um, he, he's also a Nobel laureate, and he expresses a lot of certainty in this quote and in other uh, quotes um, that the evidence is pretty much on his side, uh, that uh, fiscal actions that were taken were not only necessary, but in fact insufficient in magnitude. However, with the debt of the United States government coming close to the country's national income, some observers expressed alarm and advocated cuts and, uh, in public deficits, so exactly the opposite response of what Paul Krugman is here advocating. So here's a quote from another eminent macroeconomist expressing no less confidence and again describing the evidence as speaking in his favor. So the topic of today's conversation is going to be fiscal policy in crises and recoveries. But if there is a sub-theme of this talk, it's as follows. How should policymakers conduct policy, in this case fiscal, but even more broadly, in face of such conflicting testimony? How should the public, how should you formulate your views about economic policy in face of this cacophony of voices? Ultimately, I'll also be talking to my colleagues, addressing my colleagues here and myself, in, um, in asking what our role as academics, uh, what is our role as academics in conveying uncertainty and subtlety in our policy recommendations. So I had a brief stint in uh, the public sector before my PhD at, uh, at Maryland. Um, it was a short but a formative uh, time. And in that period, and uh, in my period as an academic, I've rarely come across a policymaker who wanted anything but a definitive answer to policy questions. Um, as Voucher pointed out, I occasionally interview with, uh, with journalistic outlets, and the mode of journalistic conversation isn't much different. There, the preferred discourse is to have a very confident economist with one view, pitted against another confident economist with another view, and let them hash it out, you know, fight it out, and let, let people decide on their own. This is perhaps best summarized in a uh, quote by um, Harry Truman, the President, the president, uh, former president of the United States, where he said that he wished to meet a one-armed economist that doesn't qualify everything with, with on the other hand. So tonight, I'm going to unashamedly play the role of the two-handed economist. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we know about fiscal policy, um, but I will also tell you a lot about what we don't know. I'll then try to demonstrate that 
uncertainty about reality shouldn't leave us entirely impotent in giving policy advice. Despite ambiguity and disagreement, there are some common sense policies that can be universally acceptable um, even with this uncertainty over the effects of fiscal policy. Let me put the debate over fiscal policy and the crisis into perspective. So with an unemployment, this shows the U.S. unemployment rate since the 1970s till today. And as you can see, in, the ni- in 2008, unemployment was inching towards, uh, post- to- towards near post-war highs in the United States. Um, and there was no question that the United States and the world economy were in one of the most devastating recessions in the past century. It's natural that policymakers wanted to formulate some response to this situation. With so many people and so many resources unemployed, standard textbook macroeconomics suggests that increases in public spending and tax cuts can stimulate the economy and should be, should be used to do so. These are interest rates at which the U.S. can borrow from the 1950s to today. And you see that during the crisis, these interest rates were near all-time lows. With uh, interest rates so low, the cost of borrowing for the, for the U.S. government in order to stimulate the economy were very low. And having a fiscal expansion would be very cheap. So traditional Keynesian theory had pr- clear prescriptions for the economy's ills. But macroeconomics has evolved since Keynes, since the 1930s, and modern theories provide other suggestions. Some modern macroeconomic models would suggest that using fiscal policy is ineffective at stimulating the economy. Other modern models would suggest that it's even counterproductive. Why counterproductive? Because the debt of the U.S. federal government was also inching to uh, post-war highs, and reaching almost 100% of U.S. GDP. It was fair to ask, as we, as we were observing this, whether a recession that was triggered by excessive borrowing in the private sector, unexpected market shifts, and defaults could be addressed by further borrowing and risking public default. But ultimately, whether we should be concerned about public debt, whether we should stimulate the economy, is an empirical question. What kind of evidence can we bear to see what, which of these views makes more sense? Should we be more, more afraid about the recession and need to expand, or should we be more afraid about public debt and need to have austerity? So this, this policy question obviously stimulated a lot of renewed interest in empirical research on what is called the fiscal multiplier. The government spending multiplier is defined as the pound increase in GDP, in uh, national income, that is stimulated by a one pound increase in government spending. You can give a similar definition for tax cuts and GDP, uh, but I'm gonna focus on government spending in this part of the talk. To put this into perspective, let's understand what a government spending multiplier of one means. Well, government spending is one component of GDP, of gross domestic product. So a a fiscal multiplier of one means that GDP increases one-to-one with government spending, and that government spending is neither crowding out nor stimulating other 
economic activity, private sector economic activity. It is neither crowding out nor stimulating consumption nor investment. So the multiplier of one, this magic number of one, has become somewhat of a benchmark in the research on the fiscal multiplier. I should, I should emphasize that this is not a full cost-benefit analysis of the, of the desirability of fiscal stimulus, but it, it gives us some benchmark as to whether government spending is giving us more or less than the government spending itself. A multiplier of one, of, of greater than one, uh, means that increased government spending not only increases GDP by that amount, but also encourages private sector activity, just as Keynes and textbook macroeconomics would suggest. A multiplier below one means that government spending crowds out and disincentivizes private sector activity, just as many modern macroeconomics models would suggest. Before I turn to the evidence on this, so I'll, we're, we're gonna, I'll leave you in suspense for another few moments as to whether the multiplier is greater or smaller than one, I want to give you two reasons why you should be skeptical with any evidence that someone might give. One of these reasons is a priori. Government spending affects economic activity, but also reacts to economic conditions. This could be because of automatic stabilizers or because policymakers react to changes in GDP with their government spending plans. To assess the effectiveness of government spending to stimulate the economy, we would need some kind of surprise, unanticipated, and entirely exogenous change in government spending that wasn't reacting in any way to economic conditions. And it's very hard to think about reasons why government spending would change in a dramatic way that was not related to some parts of the macroeconomy, some conditions in the macroeconomy. So I can't do justice to all, that macro, all the attempts macroeconomists have made to try to address this problem, but rather I'm going to warn you, before I show you some, 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 uh, some results that of, of such studies, that all such attempts, and that includes my own research on the topic, are subject to some critique as to how they address these problems, and they should all be taken with a grain of salt. So that's kind of the a priori reason why you should be a little skeptical about any macroeconomic evidence of the effects of, um, of government spending multipliers. But today I'd like to focus on a second a posteriori reason to question any evidence you might see on this question. We only have a, a high quality macroeconomic data from a few countries and sometimes for very short time series. This doesn't really allow very accurate estimates of the effects of government spending on the macroeconomy. Even if we could overcome the theoretical obstacle that it's very hard to identify what effect government spending has on the economy. So let me give you a sense of this uncertainty and inaccuracy. What I'm showing you here is a histogram of the number of academic papers as cited in a survey, paper, a survey paper by Valerie Ramey, giving estimates of the fiscal multiplier. You can see that the range goes from about 0.6 to about 1.5, and unfortunately, it straddles both sides of the magic number of one that I, I told you to focus on, 
And in fact, it kind of seems like it's almost an average of one, right? <laughs> so basically, we have exactly the type of disagreement among economists that tends to be the focus of the journalistic accounts and of policy discussion. So CNN will bring in an economist, a 1.5 economist, will bring in a 0.6 economist, and they'll shout each other for 15 minutes and move on to talking about um, you know, some, uh, some scandal. I don't know. But I want to show you another histogram. This is a histogram of the range of fiscal multiplier estimates within a single study. Now, I don't want to pick on this specific study because the same, you would get the same if I took almost any paper on the fiscal multiplier. In this paper, there are a number of different specifications, different types of assumptions, um, and the estimates themselves have standard errors. There are some margin of error in these estimates. So the, if I, what I did here is I sampled fiscal multipliers out of these different, within the same paper, out of the estimates you could get if you read different parts of this paper or if you took seriously the standard errors of these estimates. Overall, the uncertainty within the same paper is greater than the uncertainty across these different estimates. This is the story you don't, you don't hear as much. This same paper, which is one of the observations over here in the previous histogram, it's confidently placed at 1.2. You could barely tell that it's it should be placed at 1.2 in that previous histogram. In fact, it gives about equal confidence to the 0.6 estimate and to the 1.5 estimate. Okay, it can't tell, it can't distinguish between those two possibilities. So as you can see, this, so this, this debate is, so, so, so this is showing a two-armed economist, okay? These are two-armed economists, rather than a lot of one-armed economists that are debating each other. But this uncertainty of each of these studies is often obfuscated by the left-right discussions on these policies. A similar debate emerged on whether economies with high debt burdens should put their fiscal house in order, the fiscal austerity debate. Harvard economists Alezina and Ardania have feuded with IMF economists on whether it is or is not true that fiscal austerity programs have helped economies expand um, economic growth by reducing, by reducing debt burdens. Um, a serious debate between another two Harvard economists, Reinhard and Rogoff, an economist at the University of An uh, Massachusetts Amherst, was trivialized into an Excel spreadsheet error and a who's right and who's wrong debate rather than focusing on our inherent uncertainty about, our matters, about these matters. So let me sh share a little bit of my own casual empiricism on the effects of debt on the macroeconomy. Should we be conducting austerity? So the most immediate risk of high sovereign debt burdens is an increase in government borrowing costs. These higher interest rates might crowd out private and economic activity, and these higher interest rates make an already hefty debt burden even harder to service and increase the risk of sovereign default. So we should be looking out for higher borrowing rates for economies that are uh, likely to be in trouble because of their high debt burdens. 
So let's look at what happened to sovereign yields, the borrowing rates of G7 economies and the crisis economies of Europe. On the left panel in this figure, you can see the peak interest rate at which, which each one of these economies could borrow at a 10-year horizon during the crisis. This ranges for less than 2% in Japan to more than 35% in, in Greece, to the extent that I just couldn't fit, I had to cut, chop its head off here to fit it on the slide. On the right-hand panel, you can see the debt-to-GDP ratio of each of these economies in 2011, which was right before most of these uh, yields peaked. They range from about 70% in Spain to 200% in Japan. The emphasis on the policy, in the policy discussion has all too often been on the extreme case of Greece. Here's a country with a high debt level and a crisis. So debt means crisis. But overall, if you look at these two charts, there's almost no correlation between the debt burden of an economy and the interest rate at which it can borrow. Spain, having the lowest debt burden in this chart, had a borrowing rate that was higher than any of the G7 economies, including Italy, with a debt-to-GDP ratio of 120%. Japan, having the highest debt burden by a large margin, had the lowest borrowing rates of any of the, of the economies in this chart. So some people say that you shouldn't look at debts, you should look at deficits. What matters is how much you're borrowing right now, not how much you borrowed in the past. But looking at deficits doesn't give us a much clearer picture. Germany and Canada were running close to balanced budgets, but couldn't borrow at a lower rate than other G7 economies, who had whooping deficits of 8%, like the US, the UK, Japan. By 2011, uh, Portugal had actually got its fiscal house in order and was only borrowing about 4% of its GDP. It's one of the better performers in this chart. For this, it was rewarded with borrowing rates close to 20%. Okay? So neither debts nor deficits seem to be good predictors of sovereign debt crises, even in this biased sample. So this is kind of a biased sample because I've chosen countries we know that got into a crisis. Okay? I'm not talking about all the, all the other economies that saw no movements in their, um, in their sovereign yields. In fact, if you want to, to hear of a better predictor to who had high yields, look at the ordering of these economies here. You see that upward slope? This is actually a very statistically significant relationship between the size of the overall economy and the borrowing rates. I'd be happy in the Q&A to talk further about why that might happen, but it's odd that that would be a better predictor of a country's borrowing rate than their debt burden or their public deficit. So I'm not going to claim that Greece or Portugal were innocent bystanders um, that were randomly selected for undue punishment by financial markets. But rather, what I want to emphasize here is that our understanding of the risks of high debt and high deficit are truly embryonic. And you know, warnings that you hear on, you know, on the news media should be taken with some grain of salt. 
So now policymakers don't have the luxury of the ivory tower where they can pontificate, where, you know, I can stand here and pontificate about the vagaries of uncertain evidence and, you know, we don't know. Policymakers have to make real decisions in the real world. I'm now going to argue that despite all this ambiguity that I've thrown at you, and per perhaps precisely because of our understanding of this am ambiguity, we can suggest policy recommendations that are robust to a wide range of opinions. So let me take the case of Greece as an example. This chart shows GDP growth in percent in Greece since 2000 in a darker shade, alongside the Greek public deficit as a percentage of GDP in a lighter shade. Now for most observers, probably for most of you, the story of Greece came to your awareness in around 2010. This was a sad time in Greece. Greek debt was over 100% of GDP. The deficit was, as a percent of GDP, was in double figures. And debt restructuring was in the air. The Keynesians were arguing, perhaps correctly, that Greece should be given some breathing space and be allowed to cut public spending and raise taxes only gradually and that dramatic deficit cuts would be harmful, harmful, if not unconscionable. The Austerians were arguing, again, perhaps correctly, that nothing but the most dramatic deficit cuts would call markets and prevent a crisis of even bigger magnitudes. Well, while this is a worthy debate, by 2010, both these recommendations were essentially irrelevant. No one was willing to lend to Greece to stimulate the economy the continued deficit was subject entirely to the generosity of the international community and to the limits of that generosity. By 2010, austerity was too late. It was too late to avoid unserviceable interest rates and the necessity of default. So I'd like to draw your attention to a happier time in Greek history. The year is 2004. It's the centenary of the modern Olympics celebrated in Athens. The economy is growing at a, at a consistent 5% a year, and public deficits are 7% of GDP. Now, perhaps the deficits in 2004 could be justified because those were the Olympics, there were a lot of investments, but then you look after 2004, there isn't a big decline in deficits, and there, in fact, is not a single year in the 2000s when Greece meets the 3% target under the Stability and Growth Pact. So as we entered the crisis, Greece, like other economies, saw expenditures rising and tax revenues plummeting and deficits widened. But starting from a baseline shortfall of 5% of GDP and a debt-to-GDP ratio of 2010 as you enter the crisis makes fur further deficits implausible. Keynesian stimulus is infeasible. Austerity is well overdue. And the question is, so the question is not what Greece should have done in the recession, but what it should have done in the good years when policy options were still on the table. This type of policy of running recession deficits and booms necessitating deep cuts um, in recessions is known as pro-cyclical fiscal policy. This contrasts with the type of counter-cyclical fiscal policy we typically observe in, uh, in higher income countries where public savings in the good years finance deficits in the lean ones. So this is a chart from research I've conducted with Carlos Veg, and it shows the correlation between public spending and GDP for a number of countries for which data is available um, at high frequency. 
This data is from prior to the uh, current crisis, so this doesn't include the crisis period. Almost the developing countries are noted here in red. Almost every single developing country follows a pro-cyclical fiscal policy in a pattern that I've, I've just warned against, increasing public spending in booms and cutting expenditures in recessions. Almost every high-income country in this chart follows a counter-cyclical pattern. So we see a stark difference between how fiscal policy is set in these two sets of countries. And in fact, we can make a judgment in favor of the policies that we see in high-income countries, regardless if you're for stimulus or for austerity when the crisis hits. This is a simple policy of saving for a rainy day, of, of not, not spending more in the boom than you do in the recession. So what about the current crisis? Has austerity in Europe turned this pattern around? Have developing countries learned their past lessons? Well, this chart shows, um, shows uh, GDP in high-income countries in blue and in developing countries in green. And the, year, the quarter, uh, second quarter of 2008 is noted as the peak of economic activity. You can see that the recession was deeper in high-income countries than in developing countries, but both saw a decline in output. We can also see here government spending in high-income countries in red and government spending in developing countries in black. Notice how government spending in high-income countries accelerates in the crisis unfolds, as the crisis unfolds. And this includes the crisis countries of southern, of southern Europe. Developing countries saw government spending that was erratic and, in fact, declined during the crisis. If I turn to transition economies, these are former communist economies, this, the pattern is even more stark. So again, the red is government spending in high-income countries that accelerates in the crisis, and government spending in transition economies simply collapses. Okay, so there were some notable exceptions. Chile, for example, was very counter-cyclical in its fiscal policy. There were some other uh, economies in, in high-income countries that contracted spending. But as an average pattern, high-income countries have been following a stable recommendation of keeping government spending increasing at a relatively stable rate. So should we congratulate high-income country policymakers for their wisdom? Maybe. Let's look at the UK economy as an example. So what we see here is in blue UK GDP and public spending in red. The recession here was deep. In fact, we have yet to fully recover to the pre-crisis levels of GDP. Was public spending growing uncontrollably under Gordon Brown? Do we see deep austerity? under the coalition government? Well, we kind of see a minor decline in the trajectory of public spending in around 2010. So you can kind of see more or less where, the, where, you know, where Cameron becomes prime minister here, but that doesn't, doesn't look dramatic. If you want, to see, you want to put this in perspective, let me give you two frames of comparison. This is Lithuania, a transition economy. Now that's what I call austerity. Okay? This is an economy that cut its public spending by 10% and 
the public spending has never really recovered to its pre-crisis levels. I should note that Lithuania entered this crisis with a, 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 a um, remarkable debt-to-GDP burden of 15%. Essentially, it had no public debt. And yet, look at the magnitude of cuts we see in Lithuania. Maybe the comparison to an emerging market economy is unfair. Maybe the structure of economy is different. Maybe that's not fair. Let's compare the UK to itself. This, again, is public spending in pounds in the UK. Let me superimpose on this public spending in the UK in real terms that is corrected for inflation. The planned budgetary cuts that you see on the red line are negligible compared to the effects of inflation on deflating pub public spending. Much of public expenditures are transfers to households and public wages. That will account for a very, very large share of, of overall public spending. The purchasing power of both of these declines decline due to the high inflation of the past few years. So government spending in real terms declined not because of some master plan by the Treasury, but because of some external factors that have nothing to do with public policy in the UK, things that are out of the control of the Treasury. So I think it's fair to say that a lot of the austerity we've seen since 2010, as measured in real terms, would have occurred regardless of who had won the 2010 elections. So if discretionary policy matters so little, how do we explain the differences in policy in high-income countries and developing economies? The answer is in policy institutions that were established over half a century ago. The welfare state in high-income countries has taken the majority of budgetary power out of the hands of policymakers and allows public spending to adjust automatically to the state of the cycle. Policymakers are really playing on the margins of fiscal policy in high-income countries. I don't, so my intention is not to get into a discussion on what is the optimal size of the welfare state and you know, neither in the UK or elsewhere. It's just an observation that these institutions make, opt, make fiscal policy reasonable and stable by design. It removes the discretionary policy from, from policymakers' hands and allows automatic stabilizers to kick in during recessions. I think this gives us some hints as to how you might want to design budgetary institutions more broadly. In contrast, developing countries lacking such welfare states, lacking such budgetary institutions, leave too much discretion in the hands of policymakers who become tempted to heed calls for aggressive action one way or another from one-handed economists. Some of the, the economies of southern Europe did enter the crisis with a generous welfare state, but perhaps in some cases the welfare state was too generous, it was unsustainable. So once the crisis hit, the inconsistencies of, the, of those welfare states were revealed. 
So to summarize, our knowledge of the effect of fiscal policy on the economy is limited. We should follow confident policy advice on fiscal policy with caution. Nevertheless, there are some simple common sense policies and institutions that can avoid the worst fiscal nightmares. The best time to consider such policies is not when the economy is in shatters. It's in the good times um, that we need to be concerned about padding the fiscal coffers to allow stimulus or avoid austerity in a future crisis. But better yet, we need to design better fiscal institutions so that such debates become entirely moot. Thank you. We, uh, we have time for questions. Uh, wait till you get the microphone from one of the persons with a red shirt. Anybody would like to st start? Let, 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 let me uh, then start off uh, with a question. And hopefully then the audience will be a little bit less shy. Uh, so you, you mentioned this you know, uncertainty about you know, what fiscal stimulus or austerity is going to do to the economy. But you would think that the, the payoffs and the losses are quite asymmetric in different types of theories. Um, right? So I, the camp that says austerity is not a good idea, I think theirs is the damage of you know, uh, stimulus is not as big as on the other side if you don't do stimulus. Is that something that we should take so, into account? I mean, so, so that's, I mean, that's kind of precisely the type of robust policy that I'm kind of trying to point towards. So, I mean, I gave one example of uh, policies that we sort of could all agree, agree on, but I think, I mean, I think that my, my concern is that the debate becomes, you know, is, are the people who advocate stimulus right, are the people who are against stimulus right, rather than putting some kind of you know, margin of error on both those sides and accepting that there, there's a possibility that either of these two camps could be right and then trying to design policies that would be robust to our lack of knowledge of the real model of the economy. So, um, so I, I, think, I think in your example, I would tend to agree with that, um, with that observation that, you know, if you take the sort of neoclassical paradigm seriously, um, it kind of doesn't really matter too, too much, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you spend and when you don't. So uh, if, that's, if you believe in that, you shouldn't be so angry about, um, about, fiscal, uh, about fiscal stimulus. While if you, you know, are kind of an avid Keynesian, you think it really matters when you spend and, and you should, uh, you should uh, advocate those type of policies. Do you think the recent recovery in the UK and the US has proven recruitment wrong? Um, well, as I showed you, there was no there was no deep austerity in the U UK, and there was also no deep there was no dramatic stimulus in the in the in the U.S. When you actually kind of look at the data, most of what, what was happening is automatic stabilizers, and that happens in every recession. So but I thought Krugman's point was is that without serious stimulus, that there was just no way we're going to get back on track. Again, Armageddon um, was waiting for us unless we. Really pushed well, think, things things in, things in the UK were were pretty bad, and the recovery in the UK was slower. Than, I mean, so I mean, I guess I guess the point is that I don't I don't want to defend I don't want to defend Krugman or attack him. I think 
I think, uh, I think it's very, very, I mean, I guess my whole point was that it's very hard to take these observations and say, you know, this is because of stimulus, despite stimulus wasn't uh, too great. Um, so I think it's, it's very, very hard to take two observations and to try to, you know, there are a lot of things going on in the U.S. economy. Uh, the U.K. economy is a smaller economy that was more subject to international prices than the U.S. economy was. So, I mean, there, there were different circumstances. It's very hard to tell, to take that one thing in isolation and determine that that was the, that was the cause. I think there's a question Thank you. Um, yeah, just maybe to um, get a practical example of uh, an automatic stabilizer. I mean, one of the things that the government did was uh, cutting back job seekers' allowance. Uh, I mean, how would you? How Can you repeat would that last part? The one thing the government did uh, was job seekers' allowance to cut okay. that because obviously uh, that was rising. Uh, uh, so how would you? How would you? How would you design a welfare? Uh, system around job seekers alone that would be crisis robust uh, uh. so i mean i i don't i don't want to get uh i don't want to get too political but um you know i i don't i don't i don't think that the midst of a you know when the house is burning is the time to sort of reconsider the design of your welfare state you should do that kind of in when you sort of have the breathing room to figure out what the nature of the welfare state uh, should be in the long run. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I personally would not want to see, uh, see sort of, uh, you know, definitely social programs declining in, in the recession. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the government came in with this notion of austerity and uh, was cutting, you know, everything, you know, was looking for, for places to cut. And when you have so little discretion in setting policy uh, that frustrates policymakers and they start looking for the automatic parts to try to redesign those in, uh, in crises. So I think, you know, it's sort of the, the post-war paradigm was a good one. You sort of decide, you know, I'm not saying that, that that's the optimal welfare state, but, you know, you sit down at kind of a point zero and decide what kind of institutions do we want to have and not kind of look at the cyclical fluctuations of the economy and let them influence your view on the longer institutions that you're going to have. So. Yeah. Thank you for your lecture. Uh, and um, uh, I have uh, two minor questions. Uh, one is, what is the general public assessment of crisis management in the United States? And uh, like, how does public feel uh, about government measures? And um, a second one is, what, le what lessons can we take from uh, crisis management in U.S. this time for future generations? Thank you. So in terms of the public, I mean, I'm not a pollster. I don't know exactly what public opinion is. I'm, I'm you know, relying on the same type of newspapers you, you, you read, I'm guessing. Uh, uh, my impression is that... Uh, um, my impression is that the Obama administration, whatever the merits of the policy were, did a very bad marketing job in selling it. I mean, uh, just the, I mean, there, there was a little bit of inconsistency because the, they, they came in you know, saying the world's about to collapse, all that matters is fiscal stimulus, and within nine months they were talking about how debt is 
it needs to be under control. Um, so in some sense, you can't have it both ways, and there wasn't sort of a consistent and coherent view. And I think the public, you know, the, the public uh, justifiably said, well, if, if debt is such a big deal, then why did you do all this, uh, all this stimulus? So I, I felt there was a little bit of an inconsistency in how they sold the policy, I, I, I mean, not necessarily in the, in the policy um, itself. Um, Crisis management, I mean, you know, you can divide that into a political issue and to an economic issue. So um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I, as I said, I have a lot of uncertainty about the effects of the stimulus plan. I mean, a lot, a lot of it is tax cuts that both Keynesians and neoclassicals would say would have very little effect. And so it's not clear, other than political... Uh, factors why you want to cut taxes by 300 billion in those circumstances. Uh, there's debate over the public spending. Uh, as I said, we have a lot of uncertainty about what the um, the um, the public spending did. I could tell you my own opinion, but that would go against the spirit of everything I, I, I was I was saying I was saying today, right? So I I, I think I think. Um, I think maybe maybe you'll be able to press me on that, but uh, but uh, but I you know I, I think there we, we have very little knowledge, and it'll take a, a long time till we have a great sense about what the stimulus actually did to the economy in uh, in two thousand nine. Um, to what extent do you think political self-interest affects fiscal policy? Political self-interest of, of the politicians themselves. Um, I think uh, very close to one hundred percent. So I mean, sometimes I mean this. You know, sometimes the political self-interest of the politicians is to do what is best in their view for the economy. Right? They, you know, one way to get reelected is to um, make sure the economy is is growing well and doing well. And so I don't think the, in a democracy, politicians have terrible incentives, but those incentives can sometimes be distorted to be too short, short-termist or uh, sometimes sort of uh, uh, polarized politically. But, um, but uh, uh, you know, self-interest isn't always a, a bad thing. I mean, we think self-interest, you know, economists think self-interest is a really good thing in... Uh, in uh, markets, so it's not always a bad thing in uh, politics either. Look, I have a follow-up question. So it's, it's difficult, I think, to decide what to do with fiscal policy during you know, a crisis, but I mean, I think you're right. Most economists would agree on how you want to do fiscal policy during good times. So, so how come we don't influence politicians? I mean, so clearly there is an incentive for them well, to get reelected. Part, part, of, part of the, I mean, part of the reason is the public's fault because in, you know, when when times are good, then nobody worries about these policies. You just want the policymaker. You don't want to hear about that. You want to hear about, I don't know, Michael Jackson. So you know, that's you know, the, the, so the news, the news reports. <laughs> I don't know. Taking an example of something that was in the news in the two in the two thousands, uh, you know, so. You know, you, 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 you know, when, 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 when things are good, you, you, you aren't, you know, the public is not worried about, about these things. And I think the, the in fact, you know, that sometimes crises do bring, I mean, I think, I think the window for real reform is, is often right after a crisis because the public attention is, is so focused on these issues. 
after, you know, after things are back to normal, then the public, the public doesn't care and the politicians might have, again, these uh, other short-term incentives than kind of designing good fisc fiscal institutions for the next crisis. Um, well, let's take some from this side, uh, please. Um, one of the common sense policies you recommended was that um, implementing policy before a crisis would be most effective, but then I guess that begs the question, for instance, in the case of Greece, how were they supposed to know in 2004, 2005 that they should be changing their policy at that period? given how unanticipated global financial crises tend to be? It, it's true that the global financial... So, I mean, it's true that the global financial crisis was, not, was a surprise, um, but it's not a surprise that you can't run a deficit of 5% of GDP forever. And it's not a surprise that the deficit tends to automatically increase in recessions. So, unless Greece somehow thought they found a magic formula to continue growing forever at a you know, remarkable rate um, uh, and you know, uh, then uh, they should have had a little more prudence and said you know, there's some chance that things will not continue at this rate and we should save a little more. Um, so so yes, yeah, so I think I think yeah. You don't you don't have to foresee every outcome to say you know I you know you don't have to foresee exactly when the fire is going to come to have to buy fire insurance. So I think you know I think you you want to be prudent uh, uh, exactly because you don't know when the crisis will unfold. Yeah, please. Well, um, if we put aside the political view. I want to, to know from the economical, pure economical view, uh, what is the, the best exit point from a stimulus package? Uh, and what I mean if we take the U.S. Uh, example right now, I feel that if they stop the stimulus program and the QE uh, program that they are running, they will um, cause a, like a recession for the, for the economy. And if we, if they still running the QE, they will cause like a bubbling in the assets pricing. So I want to know whether the exit point, the best exit point from a stimulus program. Thank you. So you know, Q, QE is uh, monetary policy, although it looks a little like fiscal policy. Um, I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's my uh, field of of, uh, of expertise. I mean, I can, I can opine uh, just like others can, but I don't, I don't, um, uh, I don't. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't know what the in terms of in terms of fiscal policy, there's really nothing to unwind. The automatic stabilizers will readjust. You know, unemployment payments will go down when unemployment declines, and uh, the stimulus was a one-off uh, expenditure. So, um, I, I agree with you that the unfolding of monetary policy is a is a bigger question. Uh, I don't know if it's a big challenge, but it's a bigger question than the uh, unwinding of fiscal policy. There's probably even more uncertainty about what the unwinding of unconventional monetary policy is going to do than a fiscal policy. So sure. it's going to no. be an interesting period, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, yes, I'll take one here and then here. Hi. Um, I'm just, um, I understand your argument about um, self interest policymakers, but I'm wondering 
if we delegate monetary policy to an independent central bank and if we delegate fiscal policy to a also non-majoritarian authority, what somehow remains for a democracy then to decide? Um, well, one question is whether demo- you know, democracy really should be deciding uh, these, these questions if it's, uh, if it's a, a good idea to leave it in the hands of, uh, of the democratic incentives. But look, the, you know, fiscal policy, you know, where democracy fits in in fiscal policy is the distribution of discretionary expenditures. So I'm not necessarily calling to eliminate all discretionary expenditures and make them automatic. Obviously, you can't have a plan for every circumstance. You can't have automatic bridge building. You know, either a bridge collapses or it doesn't, or it needs repair or it doesn't. You can't have that sort of uh, be formulated by automatic stabilizers. However, you could have some simple rules as to the overall size of the of the budget and how that adjusts over the cycle, and let the politics decide sort of how that those funds are those discretionary funds are uh, are distributed. So I think. Uh, Fiscal rules uh, along the lines that, say, Chile has had seem to work very well in, in that country. Um, having, I, I think it's, you know, it's good to have, um, to, to have independent fiscal authorities as, as we, have, um, as we ha- have installed in this uh, country to give at least sort of an expert opinion rather than a political opinion on the desirable size of the deficit at a, at a given time and forecasts to be independent. Hi. Uh, thank you for your lecture. I have, I have two questions. Uh, you talk a little bit in your lecture about the fact that there's no any clear-cut relationship between uh, the debt ratio and the amount of interest that countries can borrow. But then again, we have observed, for example, in the United States, there was a government shutdown. There seems to be this knowledge that there's a limit to the amount of debt that a government can run. So my first question is, do you think there should be a limit? And if yes, like what's, what's the limit? And my, my, my second question is related to the European, to, to, the, to, the, to the Europe. Uh, like, uh, what, to what extent do we have, do we have self-defeating austerity uh, in Europe, given the fact that you have said that we don't really know the, the, the range of a m- multiplier? So, and what, what, what would you mean extent. by what, what do you mean by self-fulfilling, uh, self-defeating austerity, like cutting Self, down. self-defeating? You're yeah. Saying. Okay. Like cutting down. Oh, okay. In, ter- in terms of the, I, I think the the whole debt limit uh, fiasco in the U.S. just uh, exemplifies um, kind of one of the points I was making on there being no relationship between you know uh, the the real uh, you know uh, the real debt situation and uh, borrowing rates. So while the U.S. was actually contemplating defaulting on its debt, its interest rates were declining. It was borrowing at a lower rate while this debate was going on. And actually, people could not buy enough government treasuries while the U.S. was discussing defaulting on its, on its debt. So this shows us how little we understand um, about the, you know, the, the market sentiments that that, um, that uh, uh, lead to higher interest rates. So maybe this gives me an opportunity to tell you why I think that larger economies can just, that the, the, the best predictor of, of a country's borrowing rate here is the size of the economy. It's just a matter of liquidity and internal market. So there are a lot of U.S. treasuries, so that becomes a means of, uh, you know, of savings, the popular means of savings. You know you can resell it. 
I think that's the same of UK guilts, which is why I, I, I never really believed there was any threat to interest rate spiking in the, in the UK. Um, so you have a liquid market and then there's no, there's no problem. It's not that there's no problem for every... I mean, there, I can imagine a set of scenarios which would make uh, US interest rates go up, but a lot is going to have to happen beyond what happened to Greece for that, uh, for that to happen. So, you know, markets aren't fair. They discriminate against countries and they pick on, pick on the small. Um, Self-defeating austerity, I mean, really depends on, on the, what your view is on the fiscal multiplier. So it's entirely possible that the, the fiscal multiplier is larger. I mean, my, my own work, I estimate that fiscal multipliers are, are larger in currency unions than in, you know, in fixed exchange rates than elsewhere and, and would, would point to a self-defeating uh, Austerity. So those are my own estimates, but again, I, I uh, you know, so you should go and read my paper. Uh, be an, another one of the, uh, the bringing me to the top, t- keeping me in the top ten download downloaded papers. Uh, but uh, but um, but having said that, I mean, I you know, I, I don't want you to you know, uh, as as soon as I as I go on you know BBC, they want me to tell tell them is you know is. Uh, the Netherlands more uh, more a small economy is it more small than it is fixed exchange rate and I say I don't know how to answer that question because you know I have some estimates for small economies and some for fixed exchange rates and we don't have enough data for the Netherlands to say what the the multiplier is there but yet I'm sure there are economists out there who would go and run the regression for the Netherlands even given the you know data that only goes 20 years back and give some very, you know, very uh, confident answer as to what the fiscal multiplier is there. This probably betrays that I'm not a macroeconomist, but you talk as if there's a fiscal multiplier and that it doesn't matter whether you're talking about transfers to households or building schools. And what's the evidence on that? Okay, so the... All, all the fiscal multipliers that I showed in the histograms were of government purchases, um, and they were uh, they were debt financed government purchases. So, so it's a very specific type of public spending. I agree that there's um, heterogeneity in sort of we we would think about there being a different multiplier for different types of spending. Um, I think the most elusive part of the fiscal multiplier is indeed transfers because those are almost always um, governed by automatic stabilizers. So almost by definition, they have to be automatically correlated with the state of the economy. And you know, it's, it, those are sort of the most hopeless in terms of trying to identify their effects. So that, that's the reason that most of the estimates really are for, um, for government purchases. So there have been a few attempts during the recent crisis, but again, you might think that the recent crisis is a particular episode and the transfers in this crisis in the US, there are some estimates that do seem to indicate that the multiplier was rather large, but, um, but again, you know, all of these things should be taken with caution. I was a little bit surprised by your comment that actually fiscal policy and monetary policy are two different silos uh, or that they should not interlink because their final uh, goal in both cases is actually to stimulate growth. Um, So are you really of the opinion that uh, there should be no interlinkage or dialogue between these two silos? 
uh, or did I just get get it wrong that you? Well, I mean, it depends. It depends what the linkages are. So the typical. Then we know about the potential of independence of a central bank, but right. uh, that this is already called into question, right? So you know, I, I mean, even when even when we're talking about even when we're talking about seemingly independent central banks, I see the risks of fiscal monetary coordination is greater than the potential uh, rewards. So in the early, uh, in the early 2000s when, um, when President Bush passed his, his tax cuts, he was very concerned that Greenspan would respond with uh, increasing uh, interest rates, trying to sort of just do, do the central bank's job of avoiding inflation. Um, and Greenspan at first, uh, you know, said, "I'm not going to do. You know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do be influenced. I'm going to. You know, I have one objective, which is setting you know monetary policy as should be conducted. And then he went to a meeting in the White House and came out and said, "I'm not going to crowd this stimulus out." So, I mean, is that is that sort of the type of uh, coordination we want? That's the that's the type of coordination that is most uh, likely to happen. Um, when coordination is needed because of sort of the textbook need for, for coordination between fiscal and monetary policy, a good fiscal authority and good monetary authority would independently decide on coordinating those measures to go in the same direction. Right. So I mean, I, I don't. I mean, but but that you know. So so uh, you're, you're kind of you're a, you're asking kind of questions that go a little beyond my uh, my expertise, which is sort of what's the you know what's the potential growth rate of the of the UK economy. So I don't I don't know how to um, answer that. And unfortunately, I don't think uh, anybody knows how to, how to answer that. So I mean that that does that does put you know fiscal that does put. Um, you know, questions as to how to conduct fiscal and monetary policy, uh, or makes the conduct of fiscal and monetary policy much more much more difficult. So it's not it's not clear anymore what a uh, if we need counter cyclical measures now, or this is sort of uh, um, the best we can hope for. Let, let's do one more question. Uh, you mentioned about the design of institutions and uh, for less for fiscal policy that it's less vulnerable to uh, the politicians or whatever. Is there any country you'd suggest that has really good institutions and is a role model in terms of design? So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, I mean, I'm not sure their institutions are ideal, nor, nor they are ideal for everyone, but I think kind of a, a good example of how fiscal institutions might work is the, the example of Chile, which I kind of hinted on earlier. So Chile set, set a fiscal rule 
in which basically it has to say, you know, basically there's some rule based on copper prices being the main export of Chile and GDP growth that simply based on that rule, they have to have a certain amount of savings in a given year. And if those decline, the government's allowed to run deficits uh, in a given year. And in the, um, uh, in the 2000s, uh, copper prices were booming and the rule was saying that, you know, Chile has to save 10% of its GDP in, in, uh, in savings and debt levels were going to 0% and the, there were, um, you know, people burning effigies of the finance minister in, in the streets because how, you know, how, how dare you not, um, you know, not give us back this money, you know, this is our, you know, we're, uh, we're paying these tax revenues and you're putting it in some kind of coffer and, and not, not spending it on us and the crisis hit and now he's sort of one of the most uh, popular politicians in, uh, in, uh, in, in Chile because, of, because, because the, when the crisis hit he could uh, have stimulus. So, I mean, just to you know, short point on, on, on that, and maybe that's kind of a good summary of, of, of you know, why fiscal pro-cyclicality is such a harmful thing. A lot of other Latin American economies would spend the money in booms, and they would spend it on very desirable things. I'm not saying that public infrastructure isn't important and education is a bad thing. Of course not. But the most wasteful type of spending is building half a bridge or educating half a child. And that's what ended up happening all too often in these contexts. You would go and spend for 10 years like there's no tomorrow, and then you know, you'd leave a sixth grader with half an education and no money to fund the, the rest of it. So um, you know, these fiscal rules are not heartless. They're actually sort of allowing some consistency uh, across time in the conduct of fiscal policy. I think with that lesson uh, for the future, I think we can uh, end this evening. Let's uh, thank our speaker one more time.